Jim. Hi, Catherine. Did you make it to California? I'm in California. You traversed the entire country? The whole thing. Wow. And what did you see? Well, there was a lot. This country, if you'll allow me a cheesy moment, the land is so beautiful. Hmm. I went to five national parks, Jim. Oh. And I would say the National Park Service is doing a fantastic job of coronavirus um, protocols. Like, it really felt good. Like, what's an example? Oh, just like distancing, masks, uh, no indoor anything. Um, That's their specialty. Yeah, and then people were pretty good about wearing masks, even on trails, you know, even on outdoor hiking trails. Like, when it got crowded, like, most people were wearing masks. So it kind of felt... um, I don't know. It felt sort of reassuring in a way. But then I got to California and I got to tell you something. We've been talking about this pandemic for six months or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, though, about climate change? Yeah. Because it's still happening. Yeah. Yeah. There's fires out there. Massive fires all over the state. We were a six hour drive away from San Francisco where the fires are clustered around I went to Crater Lake National Park. It's like this this huge lake in an enormous crater. We went up to the rim of the crater, mm-hmm. filled with smoke, couldn't see the the lake at all. Oh my god. And that's like hours away from the fires. Yeah. And then there's a hurricanes, two hurricanes heading toward the Gulf Coast. It's like like climate change is still happening. Right. Is what I learned. I went to Glacier National Park. And they have all of these signs about how there used to be glaciers there. And, you know, they're melting. It was both beautiful and also sad to be reminded of the longer-term existential threats we face as well. You did not escape your anxieties. I thought this was supposed to be a therapeutic <laughs> exercise for No, I you. just remembered the, like, the, the even bigger anxieties. No, no. It was, it was wonderful, though. But I am I'm, – I'm back Well, you know, I'm not advocating travel, but I think we need to find ways to do it as safely as possible. And I'm glad that you did. And I'm now quarantining. Yeah. Sort of, you know, a casual quarantine. Right, right. And I think this is the time of year to see, go see family if if you're going to, because the winter will be a lot harder to do that. Yeah, Yeah. Um, right. Which we should discuss later. Yeah, we'll talk more about that, which I'm trying to figure out myself. Yeah. Well, so I made it to California. Yeah. I'm in the Bay Area. And then as soon as I got here, I heard from, um, you remember when we talked to my friend FT, FT Cola? Yeah. Yeah. We talked to her at the very beginning and she, she was one of the first, I mean, the first person I knew who had a pretty serious case of, um, coronavirus and she was treated at the, um, in San Francisco and, and she was in the hospital for quite some time. She was in the hospital for two weeks, a really scary experience. I got an email from her, and she said, hey, I'm thinking about donating plasma since I'm recovered, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious what you and Jim think about it. And I thought we could just call her, and you should talk to her. I I don't know anything about plasma. Do you? Um, I assume you do. Well, you know, I I do. (laughs) Good. Not to brag. Yeah. But I know a thing or two. Yeah. About blood. Cool. Yeah. Hello? Hello. Hi. Uh, 
This is Catherine. Hey, hey. Hi, FT. Hi, Jim. Are are you still doing well? I'm doing so much better in in many ways. Um, I think I've been very lucky. It really seems like I followed that anticipated pattern of the virus that then turned out not to be true for most people, where you have like a very neat 18 days of acute COVID. Um, And so that was certainly my experience. And I was looking that way, but I'm still recovering. Um, Mm -hmm. And the recovery has been a sometimes confusing landscape of just things that were unanticipated, um, certain things that I'm still not kind of recovered uh, from. So I've been incredibly fortunate and I'm doing really well, but there are still things within it that are surprising and are confusing uh, for one thing, just how long it can take to recover from this thing. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that's an important thing to talk about because people are experiencing long patterns of of symptoms. Could you say a little more about what you're experiencing? Uh, So I was, the the day that I left hospital was the day of my last fever. And in that way, I'm extraordinarily fortunate. I know from COVID groups of people um, who um, are living or have had this virus that there are people who have been living with fevers, you know, since March and are still getting them daily. Um, People who are living with very acute symptoms. Um, my recovery has been more of, you know, still having residual pneumonia, having to visit the cardiologist a lot because of weird heart sensations, um, having an EKG that looked a little bit weird. And so the way that I think about it is it's been a lot of very slowly getting back to normal strength. I've had a lot of strange hormonal changes, my um, sense of of smell didn't entirely return. It's greatly diminished. So the the road to like getting back to full strength um, is a long one. Like I went for a 25 minute walk with a slight hill two days ago and I'm still recovering from that walk. Wow. Um, but, and a lot of, a lot of mental health things too, a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of depressive feelings. Um, but those are all, you know, seem to be very firmly in the recovery phase uh, of this thing. Um, I know there are people whose um, journeys have been a lot more complicated um, in that it's not clear that the the virus ever left, um, so to speak. So I feel like I'm dealing with the damage that the virus did um, and the trauma it inflicted on my body, but the virus is gone. Remind me, this was March when you were diagnosed? Yes. So I, um, my viral course was like March the 6th when I developed symptoms to March the 23rd when I left hospital. And then I, you know, came home, began the recovery period, have tested negative uh, since, have tested positive for antibodies, uh, which will lead me to my plasma question. Um, but yeah, it's um, it still takes a long time to get better from this. Um, and part of that seems normal. I, I guess it takes a long time to recover from pneumonia for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been a surprise to me um, just how long it has taken for uh, that. I'm still kind of climbing the hill of recovery. Yeah. I am glad that you are recovered as you are. And I understand, um, you know, that's something we need to keep taking seriously for everyone who's gone through this. It's important that you tell the story because people 
aren't you know yeah <laughs> are still uh, thinking like this is a flu or you just get over it and- yeah no i've i've wanted to like kind of say to everyone like just don't get this in the first place because you don't know how it's going to be when you do get it and you might be dealing with it for a very long time <laughs> right right <laughs> um, so one of my dearest wishes has been to donate plasma this whole time um ever since i found out i have this antibody rich blood um and uh i finally got into the process of like setting up being approved for hopefully donating plasma in october and then the news came out all of this discussion seems to be over the last week about is plasma actually useful you know is i had this vision that i would be able to bestow my plasma upon other people who are in the icu and hopefully do some good that way um and now it seems like i'm not sure what actually i am doing mm-hmm. uh when i hopefully donate plasma so i was wondering if you could answer that question for me what does it look like they can do with it well this idea of testing convalescent plasma or plasma from people who have recently had the disease goes back a long time even in the 1919 pandemic we were attempting to use plasma, just sort of distilling out the antibodies in the blood of people who've been sick. Can I ask what plasma is? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's once you take the red and white blood cells out of blood, you spin it around real fast and they separate out. And then mm-hmm. you uh, scrape them off, off those layers. And then you've just got this yellowish protein-filled plasma that's got... Uh, you know, so it's blood without the cells? Yeah, without the cells. The plasma should just have proteins in it, including these antibodies. Got it, got it. Yeah, so you can give that to people. And in theory, they should be antibodies that would work similarly to if your own body had made those antibodies and protected you from the disease, or at least helped to stop the virus. Um, it's a nice idea that has been tried in other respiratory viruses to mixed effect. There's even a a lot of debate about whether it helped during 1918-1919 influenza, but it was definitely tried. And the debate continues now for what we're seeing as to whether it actually helps with coronavirus. Mayo Clinic has done a big study, and it seems like there could be some benefit depending on the case, depending on when it's given, depending on an individual's physiology and how they respond to it. But the reason it was just in the news is because the FDA on Sunday gave plasma an emergency use authorization, allowing doctors to use it to treat COVID-19. Yeah, I saw this headline and it was like, I mean, what did the FDA press release say? Um, All-powerful Trump scores another victory for (laughs) regime versus COVID. (laughs) This is the actual headline of the FDA release. FDA issues emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma as potential promising COVID-19 treatment, comma, another achievement in administration's fight against pandemic. That's a news release from the FDA. Right, which is not a Food and Drug Administration, a nonpartisan... Uh, scientific organization designed to protect our health. Yeah, so that alone is really concerning and unprecedented. 
as well as the language from the commissioner thereafter in a press conference kind of misstating how effective plasma is exaggerating these effects in a way that seems to be in line with the need for the administration to have some success in fighting the pandemic right now politically. Mm -hmm. So my kind of vision of what this would look like was probably always a little bit wrong in that, or majorly wrong in that they weren't going to take the plasma from me, immediately give it to another patient, and that patient was going to the next day be like sitting up rosy cheeked. <laughs> it looks more like they were going to take the plasma from me and maybe give it to another patient, and it would or would not be entirely clear if that was helpful to that person. Well, until now, they would have done it in a research setting. And it still could be used in a study that could help us identify, you know, um, that plasma is useful if given during days four and six to patients between 20 and 40 who have, you know, respiratory symptoms. And I'm optimistic there will be use cases like that and the work just remains to be done to identify them exactly how, but that when you lump it in all together too broadly, we're not seeing a big effect but now that there is this emergency authorization, people might just request that their doctor prescribe it. Is there any harm to plasma? I mean, is there any downside of giving people plasma, even if you don't know if it's going to be specifically helpful to them? There theoretically shouldn't be, but there could. And that is the reason that you don't just authorize these things, that you have an FDA to make sure that something is safe and effective. Um, I mean, so FT, you're you're like hope to donate before, right? <laughs> which was a noble hope, has just been, and, and you know, before this week, you could have been assured that it would be have been used in a research setting that would definitely, if not help someone, at least help doctors and scientists figure out, you know, learn more about what when plasma can be useful. Right. And now people donating plasma don't even know where, like, it, it's just your donation of plasma has just been politicized. <laughs> right. Exactly. You might be able to, depending on under what hospices you're donating, if it's for some research protocol, I'm not sure. Uh, my other question to you is, so it seems like um, people have antibodies uh, within the three months of of them having COVID. And I definitely had antibodies back in May when I was given an antibody test. But then given the news out of Hong Kong, it looks like those antibodies might uh, wane over time. When I imagine the plasma, am I imagining a plasma that has a blood that has actual antibodies in it? Or does it have the memory of how to make antibodies? What's actually in the plasma? <laughs> That's a great question. It should not have, you're just getting the antibodies themselves. So um, the act of producing them will involve the white blood cells that should be taken out of plasma. Are those T cells and B cells? You remember. I know that there are T cells and B cells. Are those white blood cells? Um, yes. They're the things that make the antibodies. Yeah. It, and that do have the memory of how to make them. Of events. Right. So you're not, when you transmit plasma, you're not teaching someone to make antibodies. That's what happens by exposing them to the virus. That's the only way, you know, that's vaccination. Um, but you're, it's called passive immunization, where you temporarily 
have these antibodies until your blood clears them out and then they're gone and you'd have to get theoretically another another transfusion. So there would be the possibility that you, having had COVID in March and uh, maybe uh, being called upon to donate plasma in October, my blood might not have the antibodies anymore that it had in May. Um, yeah, that remains possible. Wow. <laughs> Is that upsetting? Um, I think it's like much to do with COVID, uh, just one of the sort of confusing complexities um, of yeah. it is that um, I know that I had the antibodies at one point. I can't know for sure that I, I have them now without another antibody test. And it feels to me very much like being someone who had it relatively early, um, my experience of the virus is myself and everyone around me learning about it almost in real time. Mm -hmm. um, so it just, it seems to be another feature that that's part of that um, every day. There's another right. Right. <laughs> new feature of this. Right. right. Well, if, if it helps reassure, you know, I guess Catherine can explain the immunology here because we had an, a whole episode on this. But there is more to your body's memory than just the presence of antibodies themselves. There are immune messaging pathways such that even if you lost your antibodies, it's possible that your body might be able to kind of quickly make new ones and call them back and have other ways of fighting off this virus so that if you are reinfected, it is not so bad, even if you don't actively have the antibodies. I don't know if you guys have already talked about this, but in like going on from that point, can you explain how people like me who um, had COVID and you know were hopeful about immunity, uh, who might've been thinking at the back of their minds like, I hope I'm immune. I hope I can't get this thing. Again, should interpret the information from Hong Kong because that was obviously on the face of it quite scary for people who've had an experience of COVID that they wouldn't wish to go through again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can you explain the Hong Kong news, Jim? I mean, I, I got it like, the a, same like thing a to you, Catherine. <laughs> well, um, all I know is that I, I guess doctors out of Hong Kong reported the first case of confirmed reinfection. Yeah. That's all I know. And which is obviously a scary, that's terrifying in its worst case scenario. But what does it really mean? Well, I, I respect that you both saw it as terrifying. I didn't because you had a person who was infected but did not get sick. His body cleared out the virus in a way that is what you would expect. So um, I'm not even certain how you define infection other than a positive test. And I would expect that people will have the capacity to test positive again. What we don't want to see is people having a second bout of severe disease. And we have not seen that. If, if you got vaccinated, you, you still could be expected to test positive. There could be times when your body has been exposed to the virus and has some in, in your nose. Mm -hmm. And the test comes out positive. But it doesn't mean you're sick. It doesn't mean you have COVID. You know, right. um, and I think the same thing could happen with any respiratory virus. 
So what do we know about the person in Hong Kong? Just that the person had it, tested positive, cleared the virus, and then tested positive again yeah, months which, later, which but didn't me, have any symptoms? Right. To me, the second infection it's reported was, was asymptomatic. And to me, that's exactly how you want it to work. You, you know, just because you've had the virus, when you come into contact with it again, it doesn't mean it won't populate your nasopharynx, that you won't have virus with you for a little bit and, and that a swab couldn't test positive. But it does mean that your body will get it out before it causes illness. You know, either zero symptoms or mild symptoms should be what you what you hope for. It, it, there's never a case where, um, you know, <laughs> your immune system doesn't make it so that the virus just can't enter your nose. It, it could. Right. That's really reassuring. I mean, I have assumed this whole time in the absence of any other information that uh, I should uh, behave as if I can get the virus again. Um, so that means, you know, following all the masking, social distancing, um, hygiene protocols. And I guess my question is, even if I could be reassured um, that if I were to get it a second time, it wouldn't be um, like the very uh, traumatic first experience. What does that mean in terms of my ability to spread it to other people? Like, could I, you know, get reinfected in the way that the person in Hong Kong was infected and be okay in terms of symptoms for myself? But could I still in that state give it to other people who may not have had it before and could get very sick? That is a great question. That is likely going to vary depending on a person's own immune response. So we will have different degrees to which our bodies eradicate that virus when we see it again. For some people, it will be barely with us at all. For others, we will not so efficiently clear it out. It's very unlikely that we'll have disease as severe the second time. Um, but depending how long it's been, how, you know, the shape of our immune system, the infectious dose, how much virus we're exposed to, it's impossible to know right now because this is our first documented case of reinfection at all. So we don't, you know, we're going to need to have thousands of people... <laughs> <laughs> who've, you know, tested positive after having it and to, to get a sense of how many of them seem to be also able to spread it before we know for sure. But I hope this is reassuring. I mean, this is really, this is what you expect. And I am reassured that we have not seen so far people who've had two bouts of serious illness or even a bout of very serious illness and then a bout of even a bad, you know, a bad cold. We haven't even seen that. Right. I mean, I, th I think that's obviously very reassuring to um, anyone who's had or is or who is living with COVID right now. I mean, I have frequent nightmares about getting COVID again. Oh. <laughs> um, it is just uh, um, when you do get it and you, and you get it in a, a way in which it's not mild, it's truly not a disease to underestimate. Um, and so I think yeah, on the face of it, that news yesterday must have looked very scary. It definitely did for me. Feels like after having battling through that and very fortunately come out the other side, the very least you could get from that experience was to know that you're not going to have to go through that again. Um, right. Yeah, in one way, it's like, yeah, reassuring. I, I probably couldn't have a terrible experience twice, but a reminder that that doesn't mean I couldn't give it to someone else um, and in that way 
it's not a reprieve um, from having to do all of the things that we're all doing, like wearing masks and being careful with other people. Right. Right. Though, just as a friend, if you can give yourself a break, (laughs) 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 given that you've been through so much, like, just like, you know, to whatever extent you can take a load off of your own mental worry about others and, uh, you know, take care of yourself in your recovery. Um, right. <laughs> I, I support you in that. I Thank you. you in, in being selfish in this way. Um, I mean, we're all kind of, whether we have COVID or have had it or have not had it, we're all kind of living with COVID every day. Um, and it's requiring us to, you know, come into contact with really complicated fields of knowledge like immunology, <laughs> that it seems, you know, are very hard to like make black and white conclusions about. And that's that's difficult because what we want is certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainty doesn't exist in, you know, areas of knowledge that are as complex. And that just seems to be like a constant a desire for something that we have, the thing that would make our lives easier um, in living with this thing to the degrees that we're all living with it. Um, but it's just that that frustration of these are incredibly complex concepts that most of us have not thought about a lot before um, and are now seeking to understand. And it would be great to like get yes or no answers on this stuff, but they just don't exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I've given some answers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always teasing Jim about... <laughs> never having an answer (laughs) but yes you've you've put it so eloquently yeah um, thank you why he doesn't yeah no thank you for sharing and i'm i hate that you're having these um long-term experiences and i i just hope wish you well and thank you you're not worrying too much Um, uh thank you so much yeah it's it's um getting easier every day and um i I'm I'm very very happy to be alive to have it be getting easier every day. Yes. <laughs> um despite that there are rough days and there are, there are better days. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for talking to us. Call of anytime. Course. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys. Okay, thanks. thanks. Take care. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Jim, we are hoping to call John Hendrickson next, but I feel like we should take a break. We were were going to talk about politics too, but we should take a break. Yeah, that was a lot. Let's take a break. We're going to come back and then we'll talk to John Hendrickson, politics writer about the conventions and the FDA and uh, all manner of politics. The science of speech. And the science of speech. Okay, quick break and then we'll be back. Last week on the show, Catherine, I don't know if you mm-hmm. had a chance to listen on your trip, but... Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. Good <laughs> listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to Maeve Higgins and, and Jim Fallows about the Democratic National Convention. And after we spoke, there was an incredible moment at the end of the convention when a 13-year-old boy named Braden spoke. And mm-hmm. what was incredible is that he has a stutter. So, and it took a lot of courage for someone his age to come on national television and talk about that. 
And he spoke at the DNC because Biden himself has a stutter. And so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about stuttering. I think the disability isn't well understood by the public by its very nature. It's just loaded with a lot of um, discrimination and bias and prejudice. Yep. And uh, so we're going to talk with Atlantic Politics editor John Hendrickson. He's the person who originally interviewed Joe Biden about his stutter less than yeah, a year ago. Yeah, he did ago. a big piece. Yeah, yeah. He did this big, beautiful, fascinating piece I guess at the beginning of the year, where he talked to Biden about stuttering because John himself stutters. And he had recognized when he was watching Biden in the debate performances, he thought he recognized that Biden, who we know stuttered as a child, um, was kind of still struggling with stuttering or still stutters um, a bit. And so he he wanted to talk to Biden about that. And Biden wasn't really talking about that publicly at the time. And so he did this big piece. He interviewed Biden about it. He did this big piece. So it's interesting to see Biden being a little bit more open about stuttering than he was even a year ago. Yeah. I mean, if John hadn't done that work, I don't know that we'd be having this conversation right now. Yeah. Let's call him. Hey, John. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? Uh, not bad things. So we wanted to hear your thoughts about the convention, specifically because you have interviewed the man who has the Democratic nomination. And the things you talked to him about were prominently featured at last week's convention. Yeah, it was amazing to watch. I felt like the fact that they were talking about stuttering was because of the piece that you had done. Like, you kicked off that entire conversation. That was amazing to see. I was wondering your impression of witnessing that. I mean, it was a bit surreal. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my calendar from last year. So August... 27th, 2019. And I um, have an event on there that just says 1 p.m. Biden. <laughs> and so I went to his office. Walking in, I was expecting him to say three simple words. I still stutter. We talked for over an hour. And he never said those words. And I left his office that day. It was in Washington. I was walking back to the Atlantic office at, at the Watergate building. And I was so mad. I remember feeling mm. mad at Biden. I felt mad at myself because I, I felt like a failure. Like I didn't get the goods. You know, I didn't get the money quote. And I was really mad 
for, you know, a couple weeks or so. And I was talking to my editor, Lori, about it. And the whole piece changed because it, it, it went from, okay, this guy isn't going to say the thing that you think he's going to say. What does that mean? And, and then I just pivoted the whole piece to trying to figure out what does it mean when a 77-year-old can't say these three simple words, even though he's reached the upper echelons of fame and power and success. Right. So that's a long way of saying to think in 12 months that Biden could go from keeping me at arm's length to in December when Sarah Huckabee Sanders mocked him after the December debate and his campaign tweeted something along the lines of um, he's worked his whole life to overcome a stutter. And then a month later at a CNN town hall, he took a question from a parent of a child who's who's stutters and he um, opened up a bit there. So he was just kind of getting closer and closer and closer. And then last week, Braden Harrington delivered a really incredible two minutes, two minutes speech. And then shortly after the sweeping documentary about Biden's life devoted a, a fair amount of it to Biden and us stuttering. So pretty surreal, I'd say, all around. Yeah. Over the past year, I've heard from people who, people who stutter all over the world expressing that same frustration of like, it's 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 the headline of this of this Dorian print, which is why won't he just say it? And mm-hmm. and they they want him to. They want him to pick up that baton and like lead this destigmatization movement. But it's hard, you know, just because he's a public figure, just because he's running for president, just because he's accomplished, that doesn't necessarily mean that Biden has made peace with everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's impressive to see Biden inching closer and closer to that declarative statement. I think it'll be very interesting over the next two months to see if Trump or his allies mock Biden, and he has to uh, say something even more declarative. Mm-hmm. You know, something that he has been mocked on still is the idea of uh, dementia or inability, you know, s- slow cognitive capacity. Some, some of the speakers I've, I've heard recently implying um, cognitive decline. And that is something that, you know, to the unexpert observer, 
the way that Biden's language processing goes sometimes, and especially when he denies that it has anything to do with stuttering, seems like he's, um, you describe well in your piece, sort of uh, dancing around uh, a certain phrase or a certain sound, and it makes it seem like he... <laughs> He comes up with a word that doesn't make sense or he can't find a simple word that he should really know when in fact he might know the word but is unable to say it or doesn't want to or doesn't want to say it anyway it just very much complicates any immediate bias about um cognitive abilities or you know ex- ability to execute the duties of office so it would seemingly make sense that he would say well i stutter and this is why it sometimes, you know, things sound this way, but in, I, in fact, do, you know, know these basic facts. I don't get them mixed up. Um, and yet he doesn't take that route. It seems like he would rather endure criticism of cognitive decline or concerns about Alzheimer's disease than make the admission that you believe <laughs> he should make. It's hard, too, because... There are so few public people who stutter. The vast majority of people in the stuttering community whose names you may know, such as Emily Blunt, Samuel L. Jackson, James Earl Jones, to the average listener, they don't uh, stutter at all. And they would likely tell you that it was much, much worse when they were younger. You know, James Earl Jones in particular, he says, I never use the word cured, I just manage it. I find that very admirable, the statement. But it's it's just a reality that we don't see people in pop culture or in, in any sort of public space who are sympathetic. It's very rare. And Biden's whole narrative is about overcoming obstacles, overcoming hardship, overcoming Mm -hmm. setbacks. Part of the narrative is Biden was a severe, a stutter as a kid, and he beat it with his will, with his dedication, with his Mm -hmm. fortitude. Biden's use of the word overcome, I think it bothers a lot of people in the in the subterranean community. But once again, it gets back to this point of like, just because people want him to do or say a certain thing, it doesn't mean he has to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's hard for people in this moment, their expectations of him versus Biden's chosen path. Right, right. Are you, I'm curious if you, uh, watching, you know, his evolution on this and watching the convention last week where it was a very prominent part of it, (sighs) Trump is known for mocking his opponents in sort of the, the basest ways. Are you worried that stuttering will somehow become tied up in this, politicized or mocked, or that somehow this will turn from what should be a moment for visibility and destigmatization of stuttering, turn it into something 
less positive? Thursday night after Braden's video appeared, I uh, sat down and I wrote something very short, just kind of riffing on some of the thoughts before I went to bed. We published it at like 1 a.m. And I wrote out a couple of Braden's uh, stutters. I, I wrote them out phonetically. And the Atlantic took an excerpt of the little piece I wrote and they posted it on Instagram and they didn't included those phonetical stutters. And many people in the comments on Instagram and then elsewhere on Twitter, everywhere, took issue with that, saw it as offensive, saw it as as the Atlantic, like making fun of a 13-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that, A, the purpose of that is not to make fun of that kid. B, if only those readers knew what Braden and other kids like him and people older than him and adults, if only they knew what people who stutter face every day in terms of yeah. mockery, in terms of discrimination, in terms of, of the whole thing that's taunting Biden of is he in cognitive decline? People think you're dumb when you stutter. They think you don't have a, a purpose or a right to be talking at all. People who stutter have some of the thickest uh, skin of any one I've ever met. So if, if Trump ultimately says anything or if his allies call him a call him a, 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 a veteran Joe or I could easily see Trump at the debate saying, well, 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 what was that, Joe? You know, something like that. That'll just be another day in the life of a person who stutters. There is nothing unique or interesting about that. And there is nothing new about that. It's been real helpful to me to keep it in mind and to, uh, you know, I did not understand the uh, complexity of the ways in which stuttering manifests. You know, we we started, uh, we were talking earlier about the ways in which, like, people experience the immune system responding to the virus and how it's so different in so many people and the experience is completely different and that... Uh, people who are dealing with all different kinds of issues uh there's not one s- simple box to put things in and uh it's just really helpful to think of all the different ways that things manifest and the way that we might be projecting our biases onto people for the way they they communicate especially in a delicate moment like the current political climate so i think your your willingness to call that out even when he was denying it and that was super helpful to me in understanding him. Yeah. You uh, touched on an important part there, which is 
not everybody uh, stutters this this pain and it applies to any affliction just just as you said like not every person has the same reaction to the virus not every disabled person has the has the same manifestations biden and Braden Harrington and me, we all sound very different. We all have trouble on some of the same sounds and we have trouble on different sounds. We may have a repetition of a sound, like a classic, classic a stutter. Most of my disfluency is is blocking on sounds like the the pause I just had before the word block. And I think it's just important to recognize, as you did there, Jim, that this isn't a monolith and this isn't some like simple little catch-all and I think everyone is constantly looking for easy answers they're, they're looking for these like the, the low-hanging fruit version of truth and facts avoiding nuance at all costs. And I think it's been sad and it's been detrimental, but, you know, thoughtful conversations like this, I think they can help. So thank you both. Hear that, Catherine? No simple solutions. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow John is more persuasive than you. (laughs) John is more persuasive than you in convincing me that that uh, simple yes or no answers are both not possible and not even a good goal. Um, John, thank you so much. Thank you for all of your work and for your help analyzing uh, the politics of this moment right now. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks to you both. I don't know how you are able to do this podcast every day. And talking with you for just a little bit here is like running a marathon. <laughs> I really admire. Uh, well, we stopped. We stopped doing it every day a little bit ago. We're we're weekly now. Even so, it's commendable. <laughs> thanks, John. Thank you. Um, thanks for talking to us. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Take care, John. Bye. Talk to you later. Well, Jim, I guess you win this show. Until next time. One win for nuance and uncertainty. Next Hmm. week, I'll try to get some clear answers, maybe. Um, Or maybe not. Maybe maybe this was convincing enough that I can just live in the the uncertain middle ground. Um, This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 202-642-6487. If you haven't subscribed to The Atlantic yet, 
please do. That's the best way to support all of our journalism and get access to things like John's wonderful piece. Um, subscribe at theatlantic.com slash support us. That's how we know we, you came from the podcast. Okay, so we'll talk next week. Talk to you then. Okay, bye. Bye.